Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. We interrupt the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of Four News, featuring Andrew Poor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is Poor News, and this is our midterm special. This is where we're going to break down kind of what happened on Election Day 2018, which was a week ago today as you're listening to this. And a lot of you are probably going to be happy. A lot of you are going to be kind of indifferent. And I don't think many of you are going to hate the results because it looks like it was a little win-win for both parties. So... One thing I want to start with is something that I found kind of interesting, and that is the 2018 midterm elections was the $5 billion election. It is the most expensive in history. The 2018 will go down as one of the most expensive in history, like I said. A week out from election day, spending to influence congressional midterm elections already had surged to a record-smashing $4.7 billion, according to a new tally of activities by candidates, political parties, and their outside allies. Democratic donors are fueling the Democratic the dramatic increase, according to the analysis by the Nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics. It predicts spending will surpass $5.2 billion by November 6th, a 35% jump over the 2014 midterms, and the largest leap in at least two decades. In all, Democratic House candidates have raised more than $951 million, far exceeding the $637 million that was spent to their Republican rivals, according to the center's tally. Money raised directly by candidates goes further than funds collected by outside groups because television stations must provide candidates the lowest available advertising rate in the weeks leading up to the election. Other groups active in the midterm, such as super PACs, do not qualify for the lower rates. The Democratic candidates' lopsided fundraising advantage is also playing out in the most competitive races. Over the course of the election cycle, donors have sent $166.8 million to the Democratic candidates in the top 30 House-contested CNN or House contests, CNN is identified as toss-ups. Republicans in those races collected just $90.7 million. You don't need to be a political analyst to say that a lot of this is driven by rage. Sarah Bryan of the Center's Research Director said of the surging donations to Democrats, You have people in places like Boston, Chicago, and San Francisco, and New York who are making political giving part of their strategy to express their dissatisfaction with the president. Democrats just need to flip just 23 Republican seats to take control of the House and Dozens of races remain too close to call. While the new figures underscore the enormous energy given by the Democratic Party's base ahead of the November 6th election, it remains to be seen whether the big cash influx of Democratic candidates will result in success at the polls. Large Republican donors are helping make up these differences in crucial races and the party committees led by the Republican National Committee, who are also raising big sums. Mugwick donors Nevada casino mogul Sheldon Adelson and his wife Miriam lead the way they have handed out more than 113 million. They've had more than 113 million groups aiding GOP candidates. It's the most money the Adelsons have ever disclosed spending in an election cycle. Democratic mega donors are also giving big sums. San Francisco billionaire and possible 2020 contender Tom Steyer has donated 51 million to federal races through mid-October. Another possible White House aspirant, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, also writing large checks for the Democrats. 
Michael Malbit, executive director of the nonprofit Campaign Finance Institute, said the midterms may turn out turn more on voter perceptions of Trump than any other factor. We are seeing rough party rough parity both in the party committees and the roster of rich people supporting each side, he said. The president wanted the dominating the agenda, either positively or negatively, depending on which side you're on. And that's really, this was obviously an article from before the election. It was actually from the end of October. But it does show that this was definitely a record year for the amount of money going to elections. And from the amount of ads I saw, I am in Illinois, so over the contentious governor race, I saw just ads and ads of back and forth and back and forth. And it was, on like Hulu, like every commercial break, I got at least one or two of those commercials. And it was kind of ridiculous. I can't even imagine how much they spent. So... And with that, we'll really go to the results. Now, one thing I'm going to try and do going forward is I'm not going to try and be negative. I have a feeling I've done that in the past. I'm going to try and keep everything really positive. I'm not going to badmouth any people. Because of the article, I'll probably try and correct that a little bit. But just going to kind of go through the news I have for today, which will be wrapping up the elections, going what we're doing going forward, and then some of the recent political news that has happened since the election. So this is an article from USA Today, and this is the winners and losers from the 2018 midterm elections. While many races have yet to be called, it's clear to Tuesday's election that the predicted blue wave in the 2018 midterms turned out to be more of a Democratic swell. Democrats did gain a clear majority in the House and flipped some governorships, although fewer than they had hoped, but Republicans added more seats than expected in the Senate and scored victories in nearly all of the most high-profile races. Both sides are claiming the results as a victory, so who really came out on top? So here's a look of the winners and losers from Tuesday. The losers, liberal Democrats. Before Tuesday, liberal-leaning com- commentators gushed about three Democratic candidates who appeared to be winning over voters in southern states with unapologetically liberal platforms. Beto O'Rourke in the Texas Senate race, Andrew Gillum in the Florida governor race, and Stacey Abrams in the Georgia governor race. Their campaigns being the focus of national media attention head into the election. Democrats poured money into those races. Many said those three candidates could represent a new forward for liberals in Republican territory. Abrams, Gilliam, and O'Rourke performed well and made their races tight, but all three appeared to have been defeated. On the other hand, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a self-described Democratic Socialist, won in a deeply blue New York to become the youngest woman ever elected to Congress at the age of 29. And as far as I'm aware, uh, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams both haven't conceded. I believe those are both in recount right now. So we'll have to see how that comes. And I'll definitely be reporting on that once I know more. Another one we have is Senator Mitch McConnell. Heading into election day, most pollsters and pundits predicted that Republicans would retain control of the Senate, but few thought they would add more than one, maybe two seats. Some said a true Democratic wave could even sweep away a couple of GOP incumbents to hand Democrats a majority. But the Republicans did much more than hold on to the Senate. They flipped at least three Senate seats, defeating Democratic incumbent Senator Heidi Heintkemp, Joe Donnelly, and Claire McCaskill. They may not be done there. Florida Governor Rick Scott led Senator Bill Nelson, although a mandatory recount could be triggered if the current margin holds. Nevada's incumbent Senator Dan Dean Heller was defeated, and Kristen Sinema took a a late lead in Arizona Senate race, cutting into GOP gains. But however, the undeclared race... Shakeout, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell can rest easy. At a minimum, he will have a 52-48 majority, assuming Democrats don't pull off a major upset in Mississippi Senate runoff later this month. If Scott goes on to victory, the Republicans will win in Mississippi, and Sinemia holds her lead. The margin will widen to 53-47, a net gain of two seats. Another winner is House Democrats. Perhaps the biggest outcome of the election, divided government has returned to Capitol Hill. 
The winners of more than 20 House races have not yet been projected, but Democrats have already won more than the 2018 seats required to gain a majority, and they are expected to pad their lead as the remaining races are called. House Democrats will now have to cite if Minority Leader Nance Pelosi will return to her role as Speaker. More than two dozen House Democratic candidates ran on pledges not to support Pelosi, who has become a lightning rod for conservatives if they won. And my point is, I personally don't think Nancy Pelosi should return to the speakership. I think we need a fresh blood in that role. Nothing against her personally. I just think you've been in that role. You've been a vocal proponent. And I think it's time just to let that go and let uh, someone else take the reins. Another loser for tonight, and that is Donald Trump. With Democrats in control of the House, the barks of opposition that have hounded Trump since he took office will now have some bite. Democrats are all but certain to use their new authority to launch investigations the current Republican leadership didn't wish to pursue. And the president may not, or may very well see a subpoena for the tax returns he has been reluctant to share. Pelosi made it clear Tuesday that she opposes impeachment, but that doesn't mean the liberal wing of the party won't be pushing for it. Another winner we have is, another we have is Donald Trump. He might have lost the House, but the president was celebrating on his Twitter feed Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. That's because of the Republican strong performance in several Senate races that polls had painted as Democratic-leaning toss-ups. Trump was always, has always thrilled at besting his predecessors, former President Barack Obama, and on Tuesday, Republicans were victorious in many places where both men campaigned hard for their party's candidates. For that reason, the president even found some silver lining in the Republican defeats, tweeting Wednesday that those who worked with me in this incredible midterm election, embracing certain policies and principles, did very well, while those that did not stick with him must now say goodbye. And Trump, who, lives, who loves a good foil, will now have House Democrats to blame for just about every obstacle facing his agenda. Another loser we have is moderate Republicans. Many Republicans who distanced themselves from the president did so because they were in competitive districts where Trump's low popularity numbers and divisive politics made him a more of a liability than an asset. For the most part, those were moderate Republicans such as Florida Rep. Carlos Cubello, Curbello and New Jersey Rep. Leonard Lance. With the moderates getting knocked out, the remaining Republican minority will take likely move even more to the president and adhere closely to his agenda. Another one we have are women and LGBTQ candidates. The next Congress will include a record number of female members, with at least 113 women winning seats Tuesday. The previous high was 107. Women made up about two-thirds of the districts that Democrats managed to flip in order to gain control of the House. And 11 women were elected to the Senate, and another 9 won governor's races. Candidates from the LGBTQ community also won historic victories Tuesday. Colorado's Jared Poles became the first openly gay man to win a governor's race. In Kansas, Sharice Davids, an LGBTQ Native American, defeated incumbent Republican Rep. Kevin Yoder. Or Yoder. So, yeah, those are some of the winners and losers from this race. And moving on to kind of some more that was going on, and that is... The world was watching the 2018 midterms, and here's how some countries responded. Leaders are waiting to see if and how a divided government might change Trump foreign policy. President Donald Trump boasted on Wednesday morning that countries called to congratulate him over the 2018 midterm results. Received so many congratulations from so many of our on our big victory last night, including from foreign nations, parentheses, friends that were waiting me out and hoping on trade deals. Trump tweeted, now we can all get back to work and get things done. Republicans, of course, gained seats in the Senate, but Democrats retook the House of Representatives, a divided outcome that most definitely wasn't a quote-unquote big victory. Trump has shaken up international affairs as much as domestic policies, and the 2018 elections were watched closely around the world. Many European nations, which have been skittish 
about Trump's attacks on the EU and NATO offered a mixed endorsement, with some leaders seeing Democrats' victory as a source for optimism, and others, like Italy's right-wing populist leader, Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini, seizing on Trump's narrative of victory. Foreign leaders who all have been quietly cheered on the Democrats and those who dreaded a takeover are likely aware of the limits of what can be accomplished under this new divided government. But even from abroad, the midterms elections were seen as a marker for the direction of America and whether Trumpism has fully taken root. Trump's presidency has significantly changed relationships with the closer European allies. Trump has called the European Union a foe on trade and has bashed NATO for failing to fulfill their obligations to us. The reactions out of Europe were fairly muted, which isn't really surprising considering anyone knows that all they need to work with Trump going forward for at least another two years and Democrats' partial victory won't suddenly transform his worldview. Germany's foreign minister Heiko Maas captured the sentiment, saying Wednesday that Europe must continue to unite and counter the U.S.'s America First policy while offering a tepid endorsement of Democrats. I do expect the Democrats to use their newly impacted powers to influence White House policy. We'll see to what extent that has an impact, he said. We hope that this co uh, cooperation will be constructive and lead to a constructive results in international politics. We will very intensely look to contact those who are newly elected. Spokesperson for French President Emmanuel Macron and simply said simply the election shows the vitality of a great democracy. A few European leaders were a bit more vocal. A French EU commissioner mocked Trump's tweet about the midterms being a tremendous success by noting that Democrats overcame Republican gerrymandering. And Franz Timmermans, a Dutch politician who was the first vice president of the European Commission, said the 2018 election verdict signaled the U.S. voters chose hope over fear, civility over rudeness, and equality over discrimination. But European leaders took up Trump's line of argument. And the midterm elections were in fact a tremendous success for the president. According to the CBC, Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini tweeted, Compliments to the President Trump for the seats conquered in the Senate and the confirmation in crucial states. Against everything and everyone, leftist journalists, actors and singers, directors and pseudo-intellectuals. He added the hashtag, GoDonaldGo. However, Europe and other allies react. A new Democratic House will have limited ability to influence foreign policy, especially since the Senate remains squarely in the hands of the GOP. A firewall in the Senate will also mean Trump cabinet picks will likely ease through confirmation, including a potential new UN ambassador or a possible future replacement for Secretary of Defense James Mattis, should he decide to leave or be fired from the administration. Democrats are also eager to increase scrutiny over the military and cooperation at the Department of State, which remains a small check on Trump. The Democrats may end up nudging U.S. foreign policy more in the direction of tackling issues like climate change or global poverty, goals that many EU leaders would likely applaud. We should also expect more pushback from Democrats on Trump's foreign policy. Trump has shown an affinity for authoritarian leaders from Russian's Vladimir Putin to Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Democrats and even Republicans have criticized Trump embrace of some of these figures. But now Democrats with control of the House will seek to find out why Trump has made these foreign policy choices, particularly when it comes to his affinity for Russia. As Vox's Alex Ward reported, Russia has already seen the midterm elections as a sign that relations between Washington and Moscow are about to get worse, not better. It's fair to suggest with a high degree of confidence there are no glowing prospects in terms of normalization of U.S.-Russia relations on the horizon, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, said on Wednesday, while insisting both countries will continue discussions and find ways to work together. As Politico pointed out, it seems likely that Rep. Dana Rora Bacher, Republican from California, will lose his seat. The Putin-friendly Congress member chaired the committee handling Europe. 
He would have lost a leadership position no matter what, but the total absence of his pro-Kremlin voice will be a shift, will shift the focus of the panel. The House might also more deeply scrutinize the Trump administration's relationship with Saudi Arabia, which has been particularly fraught since the murder of journalist James Khashoggi. Uh, Trump has largely stood by MBS, arguing that Saudi Arabia is too important a strategic partner to break ties. But Democrats are now in a better position to examine the U.S. arms deals with Riyadh and intensify pressure to end the war in Yemen. Democrats will also likely try to wedge themselves into ongoing talks with North Korea and Trump's trade war with China. On Wednesday, China declined to comment about the U.S. midterms. It's a domestic affair. I don't want to comment on that. Otherwise, I'll run the risk of being accused of interfering in their midterm elections. Foreign Minister Spokesperson Hua Chengying said in a seemingly jab at Trump, who accused the country of meddling in the past. Beijing will likely be watching states in the farm belt to see whether Trump's trade war depleted, depleted his support, though tariffs didn't seem to be a top issue in those races. China might not find Democrats total allies anyway, as some of the left have been sympathetic to Trump's protectionist trade policies regarding China. A lot can still happen between now and January when the new Congress takes over. In the meantime, Trump will head to Paris at the end of this week to meet with President Macron, and he's expected to meet with Putin on the sidelines. The president will likely try to make his trip a reminder to America's friends and foes that no matter the shifts in domestic policies, Trump is still in charge. And I guess there was a correction of the article. The Post originally misidentifies the titles of Germany's Heiko Maas and Italy's Marto Salvini. We regret this error. Uh, that's from Vox. And I know it came out, um, since this article is from before Trump's trip to Paris, about the whole thing with not being there for um, the anniversary of the Armatists and be due to rain, and there have been posts about um, the reason he's not being there is because rain, and that he's his vanity doesn't want to show his hair wet, or his, like, um, his spray tan washing off, or whatever that was. It could have been a logistical reason. I don't agree with the fact that he wasn't there, but I think making fun of it is not really helping anyone. In this world where we're so divided, we need to just stop finding little things and nitpick and just kind of move forward. And moving on, this is kind of where we are now. So Congress braces for high drama, a high drama lame duck session. So Congress is prepared to return this week for an end-of-year session that expects to be filled with high-stakes legislative fights and plenty of drama. Lawmakers will be forced to juggle several crucial deadlines on must-pass pieces of legislation and unravel thorny policy fights while also navigating political battles over leadership and a potential cabinet shakeup. Both chambers set to be in session for approximately four weeks once they reconvene on Tuesday, which will be today, giving the lawmakers little room for error as they race to wrap up their work for this session of Congress. Here are five issues to watch. Um, leadership fights. So Republicans are mulling who will lead them starting in January as Speaker Paul Ryan prepares to retire and the caucus comes to grips with their looming status as the minority party in the House. Losing their majority in the chamber has created a chaotic, crowded race for the party's top posts, with conservatives trying to flex their muscles in the leadership fights. Rep. Jim Jordan, Republican from Iowa, is challenging Rep. Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, for the minority leader. Jordan, a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus, has the backing of conservative groups who have called for a leadership shakeup in the wake of Tuesday's election results. House Republican Conference Chairwoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers from Washington faces a challenge from Rep. Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, is not seeking another term in leadership. Rep. Steve Scalise, after suggesting he could challenge McCarthy, announces bid to be minority whip. House Democrats are having their own struggles that return to the majority. House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi is a 
appeared confident she has the votes needed to return the speaker, a post she'd held from 2007 to 2011. And like I said before, I think it's time for new leadership in that role. Nothing against her personally, but I think it's time for someone who can bring a new voice to the speakership. Uh, the leadership contests on the Senate side are shaping up to be less dramatic. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer are expected to stay on as leaders of their respective caucuses. Meanwhile, with Senator John Cor uh, Cornyn, Republican Texas term limited as Majority Whip, the rest of the leadership team will try to move up the ladder with Senator John Thune, currently the number three GP senator viewed as Cornyn's likely successor. Senator Todd Young told the Associated Press that he is making a bid for the chairman of the Republican National Republican Senatorial Committee. Uh, government funding is another thing on the docket. Lawmakers have less than a month to prevent a partial government shutdown ever Congress missed a September 30th end of fiscal year deadline to pass seven of the 12 individual appropriation bills. Hanging over the talks are concerns about the shutdown fight over President Trump's proposed U.S.-Mexico border wall. The two chambers have been a stalemate for months. The House funding bill for the Dem Department of Homeland Security includes $5 billion for Trump's wall. The Senate measure, by comparison, contains only $1.6 billion. With Democrats slated to take control of the House in January, the December fight could mark the best bargaining position Republicans have until January 2021 at the earliest, and only if Trump wins re-election. Both McConnell and Schumer indicated that this past week the funding negotiations were ongoing, and both held back from establishing goalposts. Schumer said talks about border security have been bipartisan and warned the president against interfering. On the general issue of border security, we've had a great discussion in the appropriations process. They've been bipartisan, and I would hope the president would interfere and we could get something good done, Schumer told reporters. Trump appeared to soften his long-running shutdown threat after Tuesday's elections. He told reporters the shutdown wasn't necessarily on the table, but could be pledging that the White House could would be fighting for the wall. Two other issues could throw up potential hurdles to government funding. Talks. Trump's pledge last month to start cutting off aid to Central American countries and retribution for a migrant caravan and a decision to oust Attorney General Jeff Sessions. More on, I'll discuss more on the Jeff Sessions thing later. The Congress will have the chance to set the foreign aid levels in the funding bill they send to the President, which will need to include appropriations for the State Department and Foreign Operations, one of the seven bills lawmakers failed to pass by September 30th. Retiring GOP Senator Jeff Flake on Friday opened the door to trying to get legislation to protect Special Counsel Robert Mueller into the final appropriations bill if it can't pass as a standalone measure. Neither approach seems achievable given the opposition from GOP leadership. Uh, nominations are another thing. High on the due list for the lame duck session are a dozen executive and judicial nominations as Senate Republicans have honed in on their ability to confirm Trump's nominees. Cornyn asked before the recent recess what was on post-election agenda, quipped nominations, more nominations. Republicans have confirmed Trump's judicial picks, particularly nominees for the influence circuit courts, at a breakneck pace during the first two years of administration, even setting a record for the number of appeal judges confirmed. They're expected to continue to work with dozens of judicial nominees awaiting a Senate floor vote, and the Senate Judiciary Committee held two controversial hearings during October recess to advance judicial nominations. We're going to do everything we can to get you through before the end of the year, Senator Orrin Hatch told the nominees at one of the hearings. The horrible taxes have infuriated Democrats who say Republicans are sidestepping Senate norms in order to stack the courts with young conservative judges. Democrats who nixed the filibuster for most court nominations in 2013 are unable to block a nominee without help from Republicans. Looming over the Senate's work on Trump's nominees are concerned about a possible cabinet shakeup in the final months of the year. Sessions was the first cabinet member to go after the midterms when Trump announced on Twitter the day after the election that had been ousted. Since then, Washington has been abuzz with chatter about who could be next. Trump is probably considering dismissing Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross before the end of the year. It's unlikely there is enough time on the Senate calendar for 
The chamber to vet, debate, and vote on a cabinet nominee and waiting until 2019 could benefit McConnell, depending on the results of the Senate races in Arizona, Florida, and Mississippi. Republicans are expected to have between 51 and 54 seats, potentially giving them a larger margin to clear controversial nominees. Lawmakers are expected to make a renewed effort to pass a criminal justice reform bill by the end of the year after punting the issue into the lame duck session. Advocates for the proposal are hoping it has new momentum after McConnell pledged before the midterm that he would measure support for legislation and bring it to the floor if it can get the 60 votes needed to pass. If McConnell brings the bill to the Senate floor, it would mark a significant victory for bipartisan groups of senators who tried unsuccessfully for years to get a vote amid opposition from a small but vocal wing of Republican caucuses. Trump advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner has also prioritized ongoing negotiations to merge prison reform and sentencing reform, and he's been at the center of the Senate talks. A GOP aide told The Hill earlier this month the senator involved in talks were close to a deal. While two Senate aides stressed that there were not finalized legislative texts yet, a spokesman for the Grassley asked on Friday if texts had been finalized, said talks remained ongoing. The tentative agreement, according to a copy of the draft legislation viewed by The Hill, would pair a House-passed prison reform bill with some sentencing reform, including reducing lifetime mandatory minimum sentences after two prior felony drug convictions to at least 25 years, reduce the minimum sentencing after one prior conviction from 20 to 15 years, and make the Fair Sentencing Act retroactive. Also expanded an existing, strategy, or existing safety valve for mandatory minimum sentencing, but would not apply retroactively according to the draft seen by The Hill. Uh, also going up is the Farm Bill. Lawmakers are aiming to wrap up the Mammoth Agriculture Bill by the end of the year after the September 30th deadline passed without a compromise. At the center of this agreement is a stalemate over tightening requirements for food stamps, an idea being pushed for by House Republicans and Trump. The bill, which passed the House along party lines, would impose new work requirements on the food stamp program and tighten overall eligibility for federal assistance. But the idea has run into a buzzsaw in the Senate, where leadership needs 60 votes, meaning some Democratic support, to clear the bill. The Senate's legislation, which passed the chamber in July, did include the new food stamp requirements. McConnell told reporters on Kentucky that negotiations are focused on trying to get a farm bill by the end of the year. But he said the food stamp changes are mucking up the talks. We just have to compromise, he said. That's the part that's a little tricky, but we'll get there. Trump said last week that he still wants the work requirements, and he's blaming Democrats for the holdup. We could have it very fast without the work rules, but we want the work rules in it, and the Democrats just don't want to vote for that. So at some point, they'll have to pay maybe a price, Trump said. And as we're kind of waiting in this whole lame duck session, there's also coming the recount. Um, this article going to be So step right up. The recount circus has come back to Florida. From pro-Trump protesters to swarming layers to paper jams, the latest ballot counting isn't making the state look any better than the last one. Inside a man in a suit arguing for the merits of a paper clip over Staples outside a man in... A Hillary Clinton mass held signs arguing for the former Democratic presidential nominee to be sent to prison along with local election officials. Florida statewide recounts got underway Sunday morning with lawsuits, protests, and some high-stakes paper jams, as both parties dug in for a prolonged legal battle over critical Senate and gubernatorial races one of the largest states in the country. The whole world is watching this, Judge Betsy Benson said inside the Broward County Election Office, which had been newly fortified by layers of police and private security forces to protect voter counts from the protests raging outside. Almost two decades after hanging chads and butterfly ballots earned it, um, ignominy? I don't actually know that word. In the 2000 recount, I'm guessing it just means, like, made it a dark thing. Yeah, whatever. In the 2000 recount, South Florida is one, again, grounds here for a closely watched recount. 
Let the deja vu all over again walking in here, said Larry Davis, the attorney who has monitored election for Democratic candidates and officials since 2000, calling out the names of GOP counterparts he recognized from the Bush v. Gore days 18 years ago. Of course, that had a little more importance to it. Recounts really turn up more than a few hundred misidentified ballots and ongoing or outgoing Republican Governor Rick Scott leads Democratic Senator Bill Nelson by thir- about 13,000 votes in the Senate race. So, we, so could Nelson really still pull out a victory? Anything's possible, Davis said. It's Florida. NBC News has rated the race as too close to call. Some counties have to run machines 24 hours a day to process the nearly 8.2 million votes cast statewide by the Thursday afternoon deadline for recount results. And there's talk officials plan to sleep in their offices so they would be in place to ad, uh, adjudicate any questionable ballots that might arise in the middle of the night. Bring your pillow, advised one attorney working for the Supervisor Elections Office in Broward County. One employee who has been seen toting a gallon jug of water and 200 G shots as he crossed the police lines of the tightly secured office to get into work early Sunday morning. No one can sleep outside given the din of 150 or so noisy pro-Donald Trump supporters yelling through bullhorns. A cherry picker hoisted a giant Trump flag in the air and a pickup truck was flashed with pro-Trump and pro-law enforcement flags like a MAGA porcupine. A large troop of Democrat supporters showed up on Friday creating some tension with the pro-Trump side, but on Sunday Trump's fans had the parking lot outside the strip mall voting office to themselves. Republican officials from Sen- Scott to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida to Trump... Um, Republican officials from Scott to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida to Trump himself, who has tweeted about Broward no less than five times in the past five, few days, have promoted unsubstantiated allegations about voter fraud here, putting a target on the heavily Democratic county. Scott also asked the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to investigate, but the department said it had received no evidence of fraud. That hasn't stopped the protests. I imagine we're going to have people there every day, said Diana Taub, vice president of the Southwest Broward Republican Club. Still, Broward County and its supervisor of elections, Brenda Snipes, have been plagued by legitimate election administration concerns for years. Snipes is not someone who would mal- manufacture boxes of ballots to throw an election. She's simply incompetent, said the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel editorial board wrote Friday, reiterating the newspaper's call first issued in June for Snipes to step down or be removed from office. What started with a small red-hatted prayer circle in the morning swelled with the Florida heat into a large crowd by noon. The mood was ultimately festive and angry. One-minute members of Bikers for Trump were dancing to songs like Cans I Want More, recorded with pro-Trump lyrics, and the next minute a woman with long blonde hair who said her name was MJ was yelling at the top of her lungs about the, um, I'm not going to say it, so the effing Jews. An Eretz news conference broke out around the woman who told the assembly crowd that she herself was Jewish, but frustrated that the large Jewish population in South Florida reliably votes Democratic. That seems like a weird thing to... A large tattooed man with a shaved head who gave his name only as Taco stepped up beside her. He was wearing a cut-off black shirt that featured a drawing of Trump riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle and holding a sawed-off shotgun that said Drain the Swamp. But Trump was also seen against Harley-Davidson just a couple months ago, so... That seems kind of counterproductive. They control, uh, they control the media, they control the entertainment business, and that's what they do, he said. Donald Trump has done more for the Jews in is- than Israel than anybody before, and it doesn't matter. You're right, it doesn't matter. Another man in a white shirt, Art Manon, stepped into the fray and noted he had been in Fallujah, Iraq. The liberals are over. I fear them more than I did the terrorists, he said, clarifying to a reporter later that he had not been in the military in Iraq, but rather was working for Halliburton, the oil field services company. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's just saying, like, I've been in Texas, and then, yeah, I don't know. The scene, or one like it, 
may repeat itself for days since a manual recount is likely to follow the machine version once it's completed Thursday. And the hand count is where the real fun starts, as attorneys inside joked morosely. But anyone who remembers the eight months long that led to Al Frank's descent to the Senate, no thanks to an infamous vote for lizard people, may disagree with the amusement factor. Republicans are trying to prevent a manual count, asking judges to stop the count and impound Broward and Palm County and Palm Beach County's voting counting machines. Across town, addressing a very different crowd at a black church, Democratic Control candidate Andrew Gillum demanded that every vote be counted, invoking the dogs and fire hoses turned on black voters during the civil rights era. What a notion that we could find ourselves a few days after election day begging, pleading for people who legally cast their ballots to have those ballots counted, Gillum said. A disturbance that included comments from a Muslim, a Jew, and a labor union organizer, the crowd erupted in a chant of, count every vote. I do agree. If every vote was in by the deadline on election day, they should be counted. And if there was any issues, those should be adjusted. So we'll see what comes of this. And keeping with the whole thing with Florida. So Nelson charges Scott uh, in un- is undermining Florida elections demand recusal from the recount. The Democratic senator said his GOP rival is using his powers as governor to try to undermine the voting process. Democratic Senator Bill Nelson of Florida on Monday called on his opponent, Republican Governor Rick Scott, to recuse himself from any role in the recount process that will determine the winner of their race. It's obvious that Scott cannot oversee the process in a fair and impartial way, Nelson said in a two-minute video released by his campaign. Unless he should remove himself from any role in the recount elect, uh, process so that people can have confidence in the integrity of the election. Given his efforts to undermine the voters of the votes of Floridians, this is the only way that we can ensure that the people's votes are protected. The recount is overseen by Florida Secretary of State Ken Denser, a Republican who was appointed to his position in 2012 by Scott. Nelson accused his GOP opponent of not being interested in making sure every lawful vote is counted and of using his power as governor to try to undermine the voting process. The Democrat pointed to Scott's suggestion without evidence that rampant voter fraud may be taking place in the Democratic strongholds of Broward and Palm Beach counties. He stood on the steps of the governor's mansion and tried to use the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to investigate the Broward elections chief, Nelson said. He filed lawsuits to try and stop votes from being counted and to impound voting machines. The reason he's doing these things is obvious. He's worried when all the votes are counted, he'll lose the election. Nelson's video came, comes up as the recount battle between him and Scott has heated up. On election day, Scott appeared poised to defeat the longtime incumbent, but as more votes have been counted and counted such as Broward and Palm Beach, Scott's lead is narrowed to the point where, under Florida law, an automatic machine recount is triggered. The recount began this weekend and must be completed by Thursday. The lawsuits filed by both Scott and Nelson's camp could complicate that timeline. Spokesman for Scott responded to Nelson Monday saying in a statement, The Democrat is once again confused. The recount is being managed by the individual and independent supervisors of elections in all 67 counties, the spokesman added. If Bill Nelson has an issue with the way the recount is being run, he should take it up with them. Republicans such as Scott and President Donald Trump have insisted that Democrats are trying to steal the election with each suggesting the rampant voter fraud could be taking place in the key Democratic-leaning counties. Every Floridian should be concerned that there be, be rampant fraud happening in Palm Beach and Broward County, Scott said Thursday. We've all seen the incompetence and the irregularities in vote tabulations in Broward and Palm Beach for years. Well, here we go again. I will not sit idly by while unethical liberals try to steal this election from the great people of Florida. No evidence of such fraud has been brought forth. State election officials said they have not seen any evidence of fraud, like I said in the last article. As of Monday morning, Scott holds a lead of about 13,000 votes, while former GOP rep Ron DeSantis is an edge of about 33,000 votes over Democratic Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum in the battle for governor that is also going through an automatic recount. NBC News has 
As Ray DeSantis is the apparent winner in the Senate race as too close to call. Trump joined in on Monday morning, calling for an end to the recount and for Republicans to be declared victorious. Without offering any evidence, Trump claimed ballots were massively infected. Trump's tweet said, The Florida election will be called in favor of Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis, and that large number of new ballots showed up out of nowhere, and many ballots are missing or forged. An honest vote count is no longer possible. Ballots massively infected must go with election night. Gillum quickly shot back, saying the president sounded nervous about the recount. And his tweet was, You sound nervous. Quote, count every vote. So it definitely seems like they don't want uh, to have a Democratic governor or a, dem- a new Democratic senator to worry about. So, or was he a rep? Yeah, Democratic senator. So we'll see kind of what happens there. And moving on from the election coverage to news that happened the day after elections, that was Jeff Sessions is now out as Attorney General. He was Trump's biggest proponent of Trumpism and a major obstacle to ending the Russian probe. President Donald Trump's fury over the Russian probe has just led the ouster of the man who most embodies Trumpism and who played a key role in Trump's surprise election win in 2016. On Wednesday, just one day after the midterm elections, Trump asked Attorney General Seth Sessions to resign and in the longtime Alabama senator's nearly two years running the Department of Justice. Trump tweeted that Matthew Whitaker, Sessions' chief of staff, will take over as the acting head of the Justice Department and that a permanent replacement will be announced soon. We thank Attorney General Jeff Sessions for his service and wish him well, Trump continued. Sessions also wrote a resignation letter, which he says Trump requested, in which he outlined much of what he did in office, such as combat gangs. I have served honorably as your Attorney General, and I have worked to implement the law enforcement agenda based on the rule of law that formed a central part of your campaign, he wrote. The move has been telegraphed on Capitol Hill, with top Republican senators and former Sessions allies like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, saying they expected Sessions' ouster after the midterm elections. The resignation took few by surprise. Trump has expressed his anger at Sessions for months, prompting repeated questions about how long the Attorney General would keep his job. Sessions known to have offered to resign at least once. Trump refused to accept it. This was not expected Carl Tobias, a law professor... Oh, this was not unexpected, Carl Tobias, a law professor of the University of Richmond, told Vox. Sessions tolerated more abuse than Trump from, any, from Trump than any other cabinet members should have had to endure. He soldiered on out of a sense of duty. Trump had a fuel to the fire during an August 23rd interview with Fox News. I put in an attorney general who never took control of the Justice Department, the president said. Even my entity said that Jeff Sessions should have told you that he was going to recuse himself and that you wouldn't have put him in. Sessions responded mere hours later, I took control of the Department of Justice the day I was sworn in, which is why I have unprecedented success at effectuating the president's agenda. One that protects the safety and security and rights of the Americans, people reduces violent crimes and forces our immigration laws, promotes economic growth and advances religious liberty, Sessions said in a written statement. While I am Attorney General, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. Sessions' defense hasn't stopped Trump from publicly blasting him. September, for example, Trump targeted Sessions after the Justice Department indicted two Republican members of Congress. Two long-running Obama-year investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department, Trump tweeted on September 3rd. Too easy wins now in doubt because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff. Dot, dot, dot. The president continuously criticized Sessions, the nation's top law enforcement official, for accusing himself from the probe into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia, a move that set the stage for the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. Trump has also complained that Sessions wasn't sufficient loyal because since then he failed to prevent Mueller from indicting a growing number of Trump confidants and targeting others. The irony of Sessions' departure is that Trump has been removed one of his most loyal foot soldiers which could imperil other parts of the president's agenda. 
Schlesinger was one of the first senators to endorse Trump. He used his time as the nation's top law enforcement officer to implement the anti-immigration, tough-on-crime policies that are the core of Trump's campaign. Session pulled back federal oversight of local police departments. He moved to prosecute anyone who illegally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, regardless of the conditions they escaping back home, while pushing immigration judges to take on more de uh, deportation cases. He rescinded previous limitations on harsh mandatory minimum prison sentences for low-level drug offense and asked prosecutors to consider the death penalty in some drug trafficking cases. Whether Trump realizes it or not, he has let his fury over the Russian investigation threaten his policy agenda, throwing his already chaotic presidents even more chaos. Trump thought about getting rid of Sessions last year, now he's finally done it. The long-standing questions over Trump's campaign ties to Russia hobbled Sessions from the start. During his January 2017 confirmation hearing, Session told senators while under oath, I've been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign and I did not have communication with the Russians. Washington Post reported soon after Sessions did meet with Russian officials during the presidential campaign, specifically with Russia's then-ambassador to the U.S., Sergei uh, Kislyak. Sessions later claimed that the mis that he misunderstood the original question and meant to say that he only met with Russian officials in his capacity as a U.S. senator and not as a surrogate to the Trump campaign. In March, he said, I have never had meetings with Russian operatives or Russian intermediaries about the Trump campaign. That was also un untrue. In July 2017, the Post reported that Session had, in fact, talked with Kielek about the presidential election during the campaign. Sessions recused himself from the Trump-Russia probe on March 2, 2017 because of his own ties to Moscow, who was hailed by former Justice Department officials from both parties. That put the Russia probe in the hands of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who later named Mueller as the special counsel. Trump routinely derides Rosenstein, calling him a Democrat, even though he's a lifelong Republican. Rosenstein also repeatedly declined to say he would fire Mueller, even if Trump asked him to. Rosenstein is actually the only one who has the authority to fire Mueller, though Trump could simply oust Rosenstein and order his replacement to do so. Sessions' recusal infuriated Trump. In an interview with the New York Times in July of 2017, Trump lashed out at Sessions for his decision. Sessions should have never recused himself, and it was... If he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job, and I would have picked somebody else. That anger transferred over to another Trump scribe that session would not investigate alleged connections between Hillary Clinton and Russia during the presidential campaign. Trump also fumed that, about this on Twitter in July 2017, going as far as to call him very weak. According to reports at the time, Trump hoped his mockery of Sessions would humiliate him into resigning. But on July 27, 2017, Sessions told Fox News' Tucker Carlson that he wasn't ready to go. I'm confident I made the right decision, he told Carlson about the recusal. The decision is consistent with the rule of law, and the attorney general who doesn't follow the, the law is not very effective in leading the Department of Justice. He added, I served at the pleasure of the president. If he wants to make a change, he can certainly do so. Mueller is currently investigating whether Trump's alleged efforts to push Sessions out last year via Twitter ridicule formed part of an effort to obstruct the probe, which would potentially would be potentially criminally offensive. It's unclear if Mueller would also investigate Trump's use of Twitter in 2018 against Sessions. Tensions continued to simmer for months, and those tensions between became publicly evident nine months before the midterm elections. On February 20, 2018, Trump complained that Sessions wouldn't corroborate his unfounded belief in the existence of a widespread conspiracy led by federal law enforcement personnel to undermine the Trump candidacy during the 2016 presidential election. There's evidence to back this theory up. Trump believes the FBI tricked the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to surveil a former campaign manager, Carter Page, based on a Democratic-connected dossier. The Trump supporters' claim started the process that eventually led to a special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into the possible Trump-Russia collusion to the 2016 presidential election. Probe Trump consistently labels a witch hunt. But Trump is wrong, we now know that Trump-Russia investigation began, at least in part, because a former Trump campaign aide, George Papadopoulos, told Australia's ambassador to the United Kingdom that Russia had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of hacked emails. Further surveillance of Page was justified by ample corroborating evidence beyond the so-called Steele dossier and was renewed several times because judges all appointed to the federal branch 
by the GP presidents and selected for the FISC duty by Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, who was also appointed by a Republican, deemed the ongoing surveillance to be fruitful. But Trump still believes what Fox News tells him he's the victim in a move clearly intended to mollify the president. Sessions on February 27th asked the Justice Department's Inspector General to look into the alleged abuse, whatever the intent that clearly wasn't enough for Trump. The things got a little dramatic on February 28th, the, Trump, the day of the Trump's complaints on Twitter session, a very public night out at dinner with Rosenstein and Solicitor General Noel Francisco. As Vox Matzegas pointed out, that seemingly innocuous meal was actually a public display of defiance. It was a powerful symbol of both the Attorney General's independence from Trump and the limits of that integrity. Trump had sessioned Rosenstein in the crosshairs because they won't stop Mueller's probe. Rosenstein died with Rosenstein on the same day Trump called him out on Twitter shows that the Attorney General was distancing himself from the President. It was quite the public breakup for two formerly great colleagues and friends. Remember, Sessions was the first senator to endorse Trump back when Trump's candidacy was still a huge point of controversy in the Republican Party. He essentially backed Trump's agenda, particularly Trump's anti-immigration and tough-on-crime policy proposals. But that doesn't matter. The bottom line to Trump was the Sessions had done something that he saw as unfair and harmful to his presidency. So Trump fired Sessions and may permanently replace him with someone who will help slow or halt the Mueller probe. That could help Trump with his legal problems, but in his long-term, removing Sessions means Trump has lost a crucial ally in pushing and enforcing his key agenda items. There's a little left in this article, but I think that basically does it. So, as we know, Matthew Whitaker is his new appointment, and we'll kind of see how long he stays in, or if we're going to even see a new appointment before the lame duck session ends. And it might not be till next year, and then we'll see what the Democratic House has to say about that. But I think the Senate—I think it's a Senate confirmation hearing anyway, so we'll just see how that goes. But I think that'll do it for poor news for this week. It's been a lot of news to talk about, and it's kind of one of the longest episodes I've done, at running at about 45 minutes right now. So we're going to wrap it up. You can find me on journeyintocomics.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at poor news and on instagram at poor news and you can get OEX all of our shows by going to patreon.com slash journey into comics and i believe the poor entertainment episode which will be a stan lee tribute will come out early as well so definitely check it out for that for just a dollar you can get early access as well as exclusive content but that is poor news for this week i am andrew poor you have a great week